0: Hello, and welcome to our Conversations with Academy Award nominated artists today. This is a, a special uh, in our Dolby Institute podcast series. I'm here with my colleague from Dolby, Stuart Bowling, uh, who is our content uh, director, and we are I can't express to you how thrilled I am today to be in Emeryville, California at the studios of Pixar. Uh, we're talking about Incredibles 2 today with the folks who are nominated for the Academy Award for Best Animated Film, uh, Nicole Grindel, who is the producer of the film, and uh, and here with uh, Mr. Brad Bird, the writer and director of the film. So thank you guys so much for taking the time to talk with us today.
1: Thank you. We should also mention there is John Walker, who is also a producer, but is not with us today. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And you With John
0: for a a long time. Yeah,
1: he worked on my first film, uh, Iron Giant, um, my first feature film, and um, he came up uh, with me to Pixar for the first Incredibles, Mm -hmm. which Nicole also worked on. Right.
0: So I uh, just want to f- uh, fan out for a second and and tell you that like I, my first experience of your work, Brad, was with the family dog. Oh, wow.
1: Um, okay. And I, uh, I... There's a sound quirky question in there. Which I don't have. What is the sound quirky first question? First digital uh, sound on television. What? Yes, and not given credit for it. No. And the outfit that we used... It was, it was the only episode of Amazing Stories that was a negative pickup, which means that they give you a, an amount of money and you spend it however you see fit. And uh, so we were the only... They had a 44-episode commitment and we were the only one that was a negative pickup.
0: And you were so, also the
1: only animated one, right? Yes, that's right. And we needed to be that way because we needed to save money wherever we could. And we like had a really crappy building that still had a cement floor with parking spaces marked on it. I mean, that's how cheap our our place was. But we, you know, we saved money where we could so that we could spend money in certain areas. And one of the areas was... Digital sound was just starting to happen, but it was in the the unreliable phase, sure. and stuff was breaking down a lot. We kind of went with this renegade sound place called EFX that were. Oh, I remember EFX. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sure. And uh, I said I on the deal that we made with them, I said, you know, we'll take a chance on you guys because they didn't have a lot of long track record, but. If this stuff breaks down, that's on you. you know, uh, We're not paying for any extra time. And so we, it ended up breaking down because it was all brand new. And uh, we got a three-day sound mix for paying for one day. <laughs> But it was digital sound, and you know, I
0: watched it again recently. That thing still holds up. Oh, good. Yeah, good. it's fantastic. So uh, that actually tees up sort of the first question, which is: so this podcast specifically is it's kind of focusing sound. on sound. Well, not necessarily specifically I on like sound, but sound. Well, we do love sound. But about how artists are using technology to help them tell their story. So I love that Family Dog was the first digital, one of the first digital sound things for um, television. For television, yeah. um, you know, Pixar has a great. Uh, history of being innovative with technology, obviously with the image, but also Brave was the very first Dolby Atmos um, mix. And,
1: and Tomorrowland was the first Dolby, Dolby Vision. Vision. Yes. That's right. And the Dolby Atmos uh, reel to that you got people excited about Atmos was two scenes from two different films I did. One was the, the uh, chase in Incredibles at the end of Incredibles, and the other was the... Um, uh, uh chase through the sandstorm i think in uh, mission impossible yes. ghost protocol yeah so we're big into dolby here yeah
2: and when he says we yeah no no well, we, come on we Six all are, are. too but Six you take two. it beyond <laughs> it's, it's bird dolby vision <laughs> bird dolby vision yes. i love that it's dolby uh
1: d vision yeah <laughs>
0: Well, for, for you know, for some of our audience, you know, obviously everybody, I'm sure everybody on the planet has watched Incredibles too, because you know, you, you guys just did such a fantastic
1: job. With the I film. think we missed successful. a few people in Guam. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're we're hunting them down now. Yeah,
0: but I know I know that the first Incredibles was a huge technological challenge for Pixar. Yes, you really pushed these. Got, you know, when when you got here, you pushed them. Was Incredibles 2 as big a challenge from a technical perspective?
1: Um, I would love to say that it was, um, but uh, the, the true fact of the matter is um, uh, we did everything that computers were bad at on the first film. That was ent- our entire movie was every single thing that that computer animation was bad at. So and water, uh, or like water, that? fire, hey, clothing, know. hair. Uh, humans, basically, uh, were, we weren't so hot at them. I, In my book, and this is totally me, but I felt like there were two success stories in Pixar that met my criteria for how humans should be. One of them was a short called uh, Jerry's Game done by Jan Pinkova, who came up with the idea for Ratatouille. And the other one was Boo in uh, Monsters, Inc. And I felt like those two characters were well-designed but simplified. And there was a grotesque period for um, humans in in computer animation. And uh, Pixar had its share of grotesque characters and (coughs) other studios uh, also had a lot of really plug-ugly characters. And uh, we tried to move away from that and move toward Jerry's Game and toward Boo. And even further, um, by caricaturing the characters and not trying to be real and not putting every pore in their skin and, and simplifying things like ears and stuff like that. Because you had just come off of Iron Giant, which <laughs> right. is 2D
0: cell animation. Right, and, and, then... and
1: originally Incredibles was supposed to be a hand-drawn film. It was, really? it was, Yeah, the first the designs that I showed Pixar that, that I had done with uh, artists in, in L.A. Uh, with my own money, uh, were all designs for hand drawn, and they adapted just fine to computer animation. They're the same designs that we have in the film. But... Well, I wanted to ask you about that. Is there?
0: I mean, you know, I've I've heard you talk a lot uh, previously about you know that you're a filmmaker and a storyteller and you don't like this firewall dichotomy between animated films versus live action films because you do both but is there a difference I mean obviously there's an aesthetic difference between 2D cell animation and computer animation but from a storytelling perspective
1: no no there 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 isn't. and and there really isn't that much difference between animation and live action either. It's still the same visual language. You still have to deal with the issues of characters and performances that grab an audience and 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 make the audience empathize. You're still dealing with the rhythm of edits and the uh, the fact that you have limited resources for X amount of time to produce whatever your story is doing. And it's just how you fill those boxes. Is slightly different, and um, I wish that actors saw animators as brethren rather than as some kind of technically, you know, oriented, you know, uh, other people, uh, because their challenges are the same. They're still trying to get an audience to connect to characters through performance.
2: Well, and actually, we had Holly Hunter come in when we were doing dailies for uh, the movie. She was coming in to record. And uh, she sat in dailies and she loved every minute of it because wow. of the kinds of conversations we were having about the choices that were being made, about gestures and, and the timing that a certain thing happened. She said, this is what we do as actors, um, but we never have that luxury of being able to sit in a room and break down every moment together. I think she loved the lab aspect of Oh, that's interesting. Analysis. Yeah,
1: and, and that's one thing that animation doesn't have is spontaneity. Um, it can have spontaneity when it comes up with ideas. You can have spontaneity when you're recording sound. And we've, we've done some experiments with trying to get more spontaneity into animation, but it's just not that kind of medium. It's too complicated and too time-consuming. But the specificity of gestures and how people move and how people sit and the fact that no two people you know, do the same things the same way um, – all of that is explored and it's explored a little bit from the outside in, but that doesn't mean that it's any less felt when when people are doing hard scenes, they are just as possessed as actors doing theater or movies.
0: Well how do you so as a director, how do you? What's your what's your technique? How do you approach setting up a, a space for the actors to do that? Because obviously, like when you're doing live action, you've got a set, you've got they're in costume, you've got all that stuff to kind of help them get there. But in animation, what do you? How do you? Well, do you I mean, we
1: it? we try to educate them t- somewhat um, by showing them bits, uh, usually showing bits of our story reel, which mm-hmm. where we have temporary voices and and uh, their characters. I, I'm a little gun shy about it. I ask actors because. Uh, you know, I don't want them to feel like the scratch voice that we have should inform any choice that they do. You,
0: do. You, so, but you do let I, them hear that?
1: I say, do you care about seeing it? Sometimes I'll show them a sequence that doesn't have their character in it right. so that they get the gist. I, we show artwork to them. Yeah. We show um, what, what the setting looks like. Um, we describe it. Um, the only thing that I do that's different, I think, from other people in animation, and, and I've been told this by actors, is that um, I hang out with them in the room. I don't sit behind a glass
0: You're not in, wall the, in the control room.
1: In the control room, um, because they feel like they're in a vacuum. And I've done some acting myself. I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not... You know,
2: Edna mode. Well, (laughs) for instance, anyway, and I've (laughs) taken I've taken
1: acting classes, which was more for me to understand the actors, how to work with actors. Yes. And and what what they feel and what they go through. And and um, it's it's already uh, it takes something to stand up and and let go. Um, But when you're in a room all alone with a mic in front of you and a bunch of people behind glass, it feels, I think, like you're on Mars or something, or in some kind of sensory deprivation tank. And, and uh, I felt that I get good results being in the room with them and letting them know that I'm there too, and I'm there to help them or to give them any kind of detail. If they want me to read the other lines, I can do that you know but but they like feeling almost to a one they feel like they like not being alone
0: do you do you work with them one on one or do you bring groups of actors together and do a scene together
1: we've only done that a couple of times and it's really great to do it but there are technical issues cuz they it. overlap yeah yeah well you are you are locked into any overlap, and the overlap is kind of what you're looking for.
0: Robert Altman uh, would tell you that's where the magic happens, right?
1: Right, and, <laughs> and uh, you want that too. There are ways to do that by prompting people and getting them excited and into a rhythm and then editing it so that they overlap. Um, then you have control, but you don't get the live The scene between uh, Frozone and Bob in the car in the first movie was done with Sam and Craig on the st- stage. But we had to have all these barriers that they could see through Baffles to between separate them to their raped. soundtracks. Interesting. But
2: I would say that you do get line readings that are a surprise for you and have introduced new things into oh, the absolutely. scene. Oh, absolutely. Often. I mean, yes. you'll well, expect the scene to play out a certain way. And then and the they actor will
1: bring something new to it. Absolutely. Really
2: fun. I think mean, Huck Milner was a great example of that. You know, he, he plays Dash. And, you know, he's a young actor, and uh, it was a lot of fun watching Brad work with him because he was very spontaneous and surprising, and he was kind of hyperactive. You know, he had to run around the studio sometimes, and he'd he'd read a line, and then he'd run around again. And we got a lot of really surprising stuff out of him. And
1: and that was also true of the kid who did uh, Dash in the first film, Spencer Spencer Fox. Uh, He was also kind of hyper which is very normal for a 10 year old boy but that is kind of what you're looking for that somebody that's spilling over with energy and we we uh got lucky twice you know which is amazing
2: and then the animators key off of that right so you get really surprising animation
0: are you shooting video when you record the the actors we
2: we do
1: we do but um people use it sometimes they don't use it others they Mm -hmm. people don't study it like a bible um, in fact, uh, some actors, you know, think that we're ta- facial we're just absolutely
0: taking every gesture from them. Mm-hmm. And and well, because like for instance, Holly Hunter has a very distinctive way well, that her mouth is shaped, right? But you echo that. She kind of speaks no.
1: a little bit out of one side of her mouth, right. just a little bit, I mean, and mainly it's for certain words and things. And that's something that we thought was so cool and unique, and just it's so great and it's the kind of thing that most people don't do in character animation to be quite frank Um, i feel like uh, people have a standard way of animating uh, dialogue and that often they don't notice all the little quirks that people have you know bruce springsteen has an underbite sure and i almost never see any animated characters with an underbite and he looks great with an underbite that's bruce springsteen you know Um, Steve Jobs uh, used his tongue just a little bit and it was almost a lisp but it wasn't Mm -hmm. it was it was just a certain way of saying certain words and I would love to see that in animation and if you go and watch any talk shows on Sunday where they're just people sitting there talking heads you can see the most quirky stuff (laughs) around and and it's it's unanimated. Nobody has animated this. You must have
0: have a very interesting perspective when you watch
2: (laughs) television. I have to tell you that living in a world of animators does make you self-conscious because (laughs) all of the animators are noticing all these things about one another and they talk about it and you suddenly feel like you're under a microscope. You just can't think about it too much. You can't,
1: you (laughs) can't. And, and you're blind to it too. I mean, I, I didn't figure out that so, that uh, Syndrome was sort of loosely based on me, the designs, until it was like so deep into the film that there was no way to change it. And I was like, pissed off about it. You know, is that meant to be me? And they're everybody like, else is like, finally, you know, finally he notices it. And I'm like, I'm the villain? That's the way you think of me? You know? Come on. But anyway.
0: We call them like we see him, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Nicole, I have a question for you. So I think most people, especially outside of this world, don't necessarily know what it what editorial means in an animated film. What is the what is the role of the editor and how how you know how is that different from a live action film editing? An animated
2: film. Well, I mean, they're deeply involved right from the beginning of the process when we first storyboard the film. You know, when we're we don't generate live action fl- footage like live action footage, but we generate storyboards. And the editor works very closely and with the director. Sometimes layout too. And then, well, first storyboards to build that first kind of draft of the movie, and then we we create layout, which is where we set the cameras into the shots and crude again,
1: versions of the sets.
2: Yeah, with characters that are like more like stick figures although kind of they've become more and more sophisticated over time with as everything has it's like
1: blocking a play though yeah. so
2: so so we, the editor is working very closely with the director throughout that pipeline process to constantly craft the pacing of of the movie they, they craft the pacing of the dialogue that overlap that that music so i think editors are working continuously from the very first moment that we're creating any kind of, of visualization of the film all the way through to the end and Again, we have the ability to control more in some ways than you can in live action because you're, you're making... Sculpting it more You're like. sculpting, you're making changes to... You can ask for changes in the action, actually, in the animation based on timing of cuts. Go back to an animator. We try not to do this too often, but go back and say we need to change that. Because That's a, a little
1: mis- more specific to CG, though. You, you, you do that at great pain in a hand-drawn film. you uh, the the where the time is spent the time difference between hand-drawn and and CG is that you are building the characters and and you almost have to look at the characters like um, aircraft or something like that Mm -hmm. where it takes time to build each character so that all their controls work uniquely to them and that they're easy for the animators to deal with that time in animation. If there were a race between a CG animated character and a, and a hand-drawn character, this, they, the gun would fire, and the hand-drawn character would start taking off. And the CG character would stand there for probably, if the race is a three-day race, probably two days and uh, 11 hours. you know, And then suddenly, that character would go, the speed of lightning, whew, and end up probably in a near tie yeah. at the end. Um, but uh, it takes forever to build the characters. Right. But once they're built, you mm-hmm. can change their their they're malleable in a way that that hand-drawn wishes it could
2: be. right. That character could run multiple races after that. <laughs>
1: yes, in other words, you could do a shot one way, and you know, it takes time to animate it, yeah. but if you wanted to change only one part in the middle of it, mm-hmm. it would be easy for the animator to do that. Whereas in hand-drawn, it, how it hooked up to the drawings would change the minute you change the middle. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, so it's the allocation of time. It ends up taking about the same amount of time and about the same amount of money. Um, you know, for a a big complicated hand-drawn film, it would probably cost what a big complicated CG film Mm -hmm. would. It's just how the money is spent and the end effect is different.
2: And and building the radio play is another big part of it, I think. Um, That pacing of that dialogue, we have the ability, again, to very carefully curate the pace at which uh, a scene uh, unfolds.
1: And if it doesn't work, we can redo the one line that we want to change and have it be a continuous shot you know what i mean Mm -hmm. so this the malleability of the soundtrack becomes the malleability of the visuals Mm
0: -hmm. uh yeah sure let's talk a little bit about color
1: Uh, oh i didn't finish answering that question that you answered (laughs) just one second (laughs) just i'll just i'll just finish it very quickly and you can go back and cut it in the, um,
2: you can then, if, if he makes a mistake, you can then cut in that.
1: Well, I didn't that tell you. We're live. Process. Oh. <laughs> uh, you oh, asked sense. about the difference between the, how difficult things were technically. I, mo- I finished Incredibles in 2004. In 2005, I was asked to, to take on Ratatouille. And there was only one Pixar film between them, and that was Cars, which had no human characters. In fact, no non-car characters. But by that one film later, we were so much better at at human characters that they were infinitely easier to work with in Ratatouille. So that's how quickly we got good. And we got good because of Incredibles. And, And so all of that stuff, including fire, hair, blah, 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 Yep. was great by the time we did Incredibles 2.
2: And and, and I should also say that while we weren't um, revolutionizing the creation of some of those images, we got really fast at doing all of it. Yeah, um, and we had a big
1: time crunch on this film that we yeah. did not have on the first film. Like a year less. A right? year was taken yes. off after we started doing it because uh, Toy Story 4 wasn't ready to, to go in. And they said, can we go in early? And we were like, Gl-. But, but but if you knew what you wanted, this right. this team of people and that right. this technology could do it.
2: Absolutely, the virtuosity of these artists and this technology stunning. is stunning. Um, it, it feels sort of like you could make anything you want and make it quickly in this world, which isn't true. But um, compared to where we were 14 yes. years ago, it's it's a revolution. Yeah.
1: Okay. Now. <laughs> <laughs> um, Yeah, let's
0: talk a little bit about color, because color is always an integral part of every Pixar film and the way all the colors are picked out. Was there any change, obviously, because we're picking up one after the other? How much did the color palette change between Incredibles 1 and 2? Well,
1: I think that if you looked at them as uh, the work of uh, uh, different people, you will detect differences. Um, The uh, first film was... uh, the, The lighting was by Janet LaCroix and... And, uh, you know, she had a different set of tools to work with. Um, uh, Ralph Eggleston, uh, uh, Lou Romano was the production designer on the first film. And Ralph kind of helped him out. But on this film, it was Ralph. And, and so uh, we, we, there, there are differences. They are meant to stand by themselves alone. But the goal is still, you know, it's, it, these are comic book type characters, they're playing superheroes. So if we suddenly got super dull and restrained, you know, and serious with the color, it would just seem out of whack. Um, But each film has its own um, marshalling of color. There's a period where Bob's life, in the first film, it went from technicolor times 10 to this really drab color palette, because Bob was now working in an insurance company with no windows and and an asshole for a boss, and <laughs> and uh, you know it was meant to be drained of of vitality in that section, and then the color so- slowly returns to the film. Um, but this film had its own uh, orchestrated palette, and uh, Ralph Eggleston and company, uh, you know, really. Uh, uh, did a fantastic mm-hmm. job on this film, I think.
2: I mean, one of the things that, that our, our newer um, visual techniques has allowed is is more texture, <laughs> uh, which I'm sure it's going to affect uh, the way those colors land. I was thinking about the supersuits. I think the supersuits were much more monochromatic probably in the first one, or they appeared to be, because you didn't see the weave of those suits the way you can see it now.
1: Yeah, I mean, we kind of sneakily up the resolution without telling anybody. Um, because if you tell people, they start to freak out and say we can't do it and stuff. And you kinda, we kinda knew we could do it. So yeah. instead of asking for permission or telling anybody, we just kinda did it. And it's not quite 4K, I guess, technically, it's like three and a half K, but it's a significant up-res from, from what we were supposed to be at, which was 2K. And you can see, especially in Dolby Vision, yeah, you can see yeah, yeah. Uh, just a, a tremendous amount of detail. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, um, it's good detail, it's yeah. textural detail, it makes you feel something. So
0: with technologies like high dynamic range, how does that help you? And does that it also just, it's, have a challenge in, I have a DCI release and I have a
1: HDR release, did yes, you deviate and Yes, it is now. But I think in time it's going to be I mean, now it's sort of like Technicolor was in the 30s. It's like not that many people had it at first, but you you see it and your eyes get knocked out of their sockets. <laughs> um, I, I would say that like anything that is powerful, you have to be careful how you use it. Um, <clears throat> I was initially worried about Atmos because of changing perspectives and being able to, uh, if you were that specific about sound, would it, would it jerk people's head around if they suddenly changed perspective? I actually found out in that test reel that it helped uh, with fast cutting because it oriented you quickly into the space. I thought it was going to be distracting, and it ended up, to me, helping the visuals um, uh, you know, I thought we were going to have to be more general with the sound with rapid cutting, and it was surprisingly robust to me. Um, but one of the things I learned on Tomorrowland is uh, we had a test. Uh, we had a scene where our character is in a sort of fluorescent, dingy sort of jail, and she touches a pin and finds herself in this sunlit uh, uh, field of wheat on a Uh, cloudless day and we had to change the light and when we did the dolby vision with it it practically blinded you Mm -hmm. because it the change was so quick it actually hurt a little bit so we actually had to dial it down we were we were like oh this is going to be cool because we're (laughs) going to be able to actually make people feel like they suddenly are thrust into sunlight and then we did it and it was like, oh, I'm suddenly <laughs> thrust into sunlight. And so we actually had to dial it down a little bit to, to get all of the feeling, but not make it hurt, because the palette had increased so much. And believe me, um, that's a wonderful thing to have. Mm-hmm. And, and so uh, uh, I, I love what Atmos and Vision has done in terms to enhancing the toolkit for a filmmaker.
0: Yeah, I mean, we certainly hear from a lot of filmmakers, specifically in the low end of the black level and the shadowy. Oh, yeah, and the absolutely.
1: What, what, what you see in the blacks is uh, blacks used to, at a certain point, if there was no light, you, you would just lose all detail and it would just be this sort of swamp of black. But um, with the Dolby Vision blacks, you could keep it black, actual black but see detail in it. Like your eye does when it's really well adjusted to the dark. Um, you can get stu- little tiny bits of detail in the black. And you could have a frame that was fully black and still see what was in the frame.
0: Well, I wanted to ask you about that specifically because when I was watching the film again, I was I was struck by your use of negative space and blackness in the film. I'm thinking about some of the, some of the scenes with Bob when he's at the house late at night. And he's very small in the frame, like isolated in a way with all this blackness around him and it it really evokes an emotional response
1: yeah well that was that's kind of his journey I mean he you know he wants to be in the game and he sees himself as being parked in the parking lot you know outside the game and hearing the game
2: you know that must be a hell
1: of a game what am I doing in the parking lot you know what he doesn't realize is he's also in a big game and it's got just as much color and action and probably has bigger consequences than the game he wants to be in, in its own way. And that's what the film is sort of about. It's, it's celebrating that part of parenting. You know, you're doing a major thing and you could be doing a major bad thing, i.e. Hitler's parents. <laughs> um, or you could like be doing- I an extreme so, example. I
0: think that's the first time Hitler has ever been evoked in our podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: Uh, or a really good thing uh, where you're uh, helping uh, to to thrust some good people out into the world who who are, you know want good things for the world and are willing to do something to get them. Um, so parenting is this sort of hidden, really important thing that people can participate in and and uh, but they should not do it lightly, you know. Um, If you don't want to be a a, a parent, don't be a parent. Don't have kids, you know, (laughs) because it's hard. It's really hard. And that's also what the movie is about. You would think being a superhero would be harder. But in the movie, Bob sort of finds out, wow, this is just as hard, if not harder.
0: Especially when you're parenting Super kids, super
1: babies. Well, there you go. We had to we had to set him up in there, and then make it worse by having the, the, the <laughs> toddler have multiple powers. Where where did
0: the where did the inspiration come for the Jack Jack and raccoon scene? That is just that's actually
1: a, a wonderful <laughs> guy that I absolutely love working with, uh, named Teddy Newton. He's a one of a kind guy, and he worked on Iron Giant. And I brought him up uh, to here to work on the first movie. He came up with that idea in the first movie, and uh, because we thought, I thought, I had structured it so that if it got too convoluted with Bob and Helen on the island, I could always cut back to the house with the babysitter dealing with (laughs) Jack-Jack. But what I found, to my delight, was that the film had so much momentum that we didn't need to come back to the the, uh, babysitter. So there was all this stuff of, of what Jack-Jack could, could do because I mean, he got, starts to reveal his powers to the babysitter. And we ended up doing a short.
0: So some of that became Jack-Jack Attack,
1: right? Yes, right. Right. yes. Some of it became Jack-Jack Attack, uh, just exploring that idea. Uh, but the the raccoon idea was something that I was never able to get in the movie, and it was so borderline, like, not not... You know, proper, you know? Well, what are you doing? You're taking a possibly diseased you know creature and having him fighting a baby, you know? Um, but it was so funny uh, in Teddy's drawings, and it got it got way crazier. I mean, they tackled each other and tumbled to the bottom of the pool. I mean, all kinds of stuff was happening. And but I said if 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 we make a, another one of these, it has to be in the movie. So, so that was actually the first sequence before you figured out anything else. So, <laughs> the, actually, the movie was going to hand It around. actually
2: was the first sequence we put into production. Um,
1: well, the first sequence we worked on was the opening. But we worked on that for years, on and off, while I did other films. Uh, but the first in production. The first was, in
2: production was was Jack, Jack and the Raccoon, and we was,
1: showed it at D twenty three. Yeah,
2: when it wasn't quite finished. And it, I mean, that's a really brought Im- the house down. I'm sure it, it sure did. And it and it was also useful for our crew because when you start production and you don't have your whole film worked out, which we at Pixar almost never do, You're getting um,
1: the heavy machinerys going, and and you have you to win to over your crew. You need to
0: get everybody excited about what they're doing.
2: You need to get everyone excited about what they're doing, and you need. Them them to feel like we know what we're doing. And so you know, we animated this first, and the crew loved it. It ignited the fuse of production for this movie. Well everybody loves Jack,
0: Jack. I mean, my gosh, you mm-hmm. created one of the most brilliant iconic and, characters. And it's a perfect
2: baby. scene for animation. I mean, this is where animation shines. It's a nonverbal scene. It's
1: and it sounds wrong. <laughs> and, and 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 you're flirting with wrongness on every frame. And to be able to do it in a way that doesn't feel wrong where it's where it's funny and not disturbing was was a challenge. But but you something
2: know. about it everyone relates to. Yeah, That's yeah. what's funny. Yeah. You you understand Jack Jack's <laughs> indignation and you kind of understand why the raccoon is pissed off. Like yeah. why does this kid keep coming back? It's <laughs> well, one of the ideas that
1: Teddy had early on that was just brilliant to me was jack jack looking at a robbery and an old movie on television and then making the connection that the the raccoon who's also wearing a black mask is doing it's something bad, bad by bad taking guy, yeah. stuff out of their garbage can and so uh, you know he's stealing from us and and the uh, it was just so visual and funny that I was really happy we got and, in And
2: we talked a lot about that, that first punch that was thrown. Yeah. Right? Who, who should throw the first punch? Right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
1: These are deep, deep adult conversations. Is it, <laughs> is it, is it, Greedo,
2: a, is
0: it Greedo or Han Solo? Or
2: yeah. <laughs> speech, right? Well, they're Exactly. Yeah.
1: <laughs> we have him give him a little slap on the, on the, on the nose. On the nose. <laughs> and people thought the raccoon should have started it, but I think it's better if the baby starts it. Yeah. Yeah, and by the way, Han shot first. <laughs> you yeah. heard, you heard it here, folks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, I'd like to ask you um a little bit about your approach to sound design uh, sure. for the film. Um, one of the things that I really loved about you know the and the Incredibles was the first movie to ever win the Academy Award for best sound editing.
1: Uh, first animated movie. Yeah. That's right. That's so, That's Randy right. Tom did a brilliant mm-hmm. job on it. Yeah. That's right,
0: uh, and. I, My sense in watching your films is your animated films. Is when you close your eyes, you you feel like you're listening to a live action film, because of the detail and the amount of stuff that's happening and the richness of the of the environments. What what effect does that have on the audience to have that sort of approach to sound with the stylized visuals?
1: Um, Well, I think that it gives credence to it. I mean, uh, uh, people often think that. you know, you're trying for reality when you make an animated film. Like you're trying to you're attempting to make a reality. and you're not. You're trying to give people the experience of reality in a stylized way. Um, and movies are that. I mean, Live action movies are too, you know? Uh, If you go to see Star Wars without music and without sound design, it's just a bunch of actors uh, clomping around an empty stage that, you know, sounds not like the Death Star at all. And um, uh, so uh, I think that um, I am, uh, as part of being a, a lover of movies, I am a lover of movie sound, and I've uh, I I revere guys like Murray Spivak, who did the sound for, for King Kong, you know, which is one of the first uses of modern sort of sound design uh, in an old uh, uh, film. And uh, you know, Murray Spivak worked on Sound of Music, which also has great sound for the '60s. and And uh, the Bay Area has been the home of Many of the most brilliant sound designers on earth. I mean, uh, Randy Tom, Walter Murch, um, Gary Rydstrom, Gary, Gary Rydstrom. Ryd. <laughs> um, uh, you know, um,
0: we shouldn't we shouldn't leave out Ren Kleiss either. Obviously, yeah.
1: Ren Kleiss. No, <laughs> um, and uh, there's so many, and and uh, uh, um, you know, just uh, Richard Beggs. I mean, there's a, a lot of guys. Alan Splet. You know, I mean, there's a whole bunch of guys that do consistent and girls uh, who do consistently great work. And they are as focused uh, uh, and about the detail as as anyone else. And they want to create a sound space. But um, sound is like anything else. It's also character. You know, it, you know, uh, Walter Murch talked about. Um, a scene where a character opens the refrigerator. And even though you don't see inside the refrigerator, there's a sound of an empty refrigerator and there's a sound of a full refrigerator. (laughs) And and if it's pretty much empty, that tells you the guy doesn't hang out there a lot. So that's the kind of thing that you may not know consciously. Mm -hmm. But subconsciously, there's part of you that is connecting with that film and you don't know why. But it's because these guys figure out these beautiful soundscapes. Mm-hmm. Walter also did uh, a synthesized mosquito, bugs, insect sounds, for Apocalypse Now. And he did them synthesized because he wanted the audience to feel uncomfortable. It gave you the feeling of being in the jungle, and yet it was not normal. And you didn't consciously know that. It sounded very much like a mosquito. But it's, there's something slightly off it, or insect. And, and that's what made you like this, like something's wrong. And that's right before the tiger lo- jumps out. So there are a million examples of really creative work uh, use of sound. And oh, Ben Burt, how could we forget Ben Burt? He's just hanging out there like a big salami. You know, it's just like, you got to say Ben Burt. I mean, Star Wars is one of the most influential things for movie sound, along with Apocalypse Now, mm-hmm. and they're both from the Bay Area and both Dolby. Not to kiss your corporate butt.
0: (laughs) But we do appreciate
1: it. Okay, well, I'm just saying. Um, I guess, what what is your hope for the future of our industry? I would hope that, and this is what this is centered around, I would hope that people uh, take more care in presenting movies. Um, uh, you know, technology is moving like it always does and streaming is becoming a thing mm-hmm. and I also stream I enjoy shows like Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul and you know Game of Thrones and all this kind of stuff along with everyone else but my love is movies which it means people strangers in the dark mm-hmm. collecting gathering for a shared dream experience and uh, um no pause button, no taking a phone call or sending texts. We're not going back. We're going straight through this story in the correct order with the correct sound level and the correct brightness, and you're going to have a trip. And you're all entering this starship together. And that's being lost. And anyone that combats the... um, you know, movie theaters used to have identities. They used to, this one was like a Mexican village. That one is like a King Tut's tomb. This one is a Chinese palace. Right. You know, they each had their own identities and they were distinctive. And, and we're now in a period where it's all these look-alike boxes. And anybody that recognizes the power of the movie experience and, and fights for it, like, like you guys do, like IMAX does, those guys are my friends because um, it, this is the canvas that we get to paint with. And if they all become these little boxes that we have no, even for a moment, just a little control for a little moment before it goes into all of our devices where you can see anything anytime, you can stop it at any time, you can skip the parts that bore you. That sounds great to a consumer. To a mm-hmm. storyteller, that is like nightmare. That is like uh, a, a, a horrible place to be. Because what you want is somebody starts with page one, and they, mm-hmm. and they follow the story and take the journey. Mm-hmm. And, the journey. and, and uh, Dolby and IMAX are all about enhancing the journey. And, mm-hmm. and if anybody else comes up with something else that enhances the journey, they're my friends too. You know. Mm-hmm because I love the cinema experience, and the work that uh, IMAX does and the work that you guys do uh, enhances that experience, and it enhances our toolkit as filmmakers.
2: Right. It supports our ability to tell the kinds of stories we want to tell. The way we want to tell. The way we want to tell them, and, and I do worry that streaming is going to undercut that, and there'll be a lot more disposable content. I agree, there's a lot of great content there, but we're able to craft something like a jewel box that we, we present in this theatrical experience and it won't be experienced the same way on a small screen. Like
1: I want everyone to see Lawrence of Arabia. I don't want them to see it on their iPhone and I love my iPhone too. But uh, I, don't, I, I don't even care if you have a good pair of ear speakers. That is not Lawrence of Arabia that there's nothing there's nothing
0: that 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 touches that theatrical collective experience
1: no and and you look a lot of people think silent movies uh were these things turkey jerky old looking Mm -hmm. things they were actually first generation prints they were from the negative because they didn't know better back then so they were perfect prints with these arc lights that were bright as hell And the screens, if you go to the Castro and see an old movie in 133, box-like shaped screen, it's like a two, three-story high screen. It's kind of 1920s version of IMAX. (laughs) And if you hear somebody, if a, a live orchestra guy plays on that organ in there and he hits a bass chord, the theater shakes. So they had an early version of Dolby Sound. They did. What I'm saying is that was the movie experience. When people talked about seeing these great old films, that's what they were seeing in the big cities. And and we need to hold on to that experience. And all of these things are, are wonderful ways to enhance that.
0: Well, I couldn't agree more, and I couldn't—I can't think of a better way to wrap up the conversation than with, than with that. I did put out a call on social media for questions. I, amazingly, we've actually covered almost all of them, <clears throat> but I did get one great social media question that I wanted to ask you, which was, can we get, will it be possible to get red carpet fashion analysis, analysis at the Oscars in character as Edna Mode? <laughs> I mean, I would pay to see that, would you?
1: Yeah, I would have to take... Uh... A lot of, like, I'd have to have people who know what they're talking about in my ear. I could could come up with the insults, but the the fashion knowledge I don't have. Well,
0: Brad and Nicole, thank you so much for taking the time today to talk to us about the amazing work on Incredibles 2. This is Glenn Kaiser and Stuart Bowling signing off from Dolby.